Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back John Ross Bowie, an actor and playwright you may have seen on The Big Bang Theory, Speechless, and the second season of Feel Good, where he turned up as Mae Martin's Toronto pal, or maybe not so much of a pal when I think about it. I had John on the podcast in the before times to talk about Mike Lee's topsy-turvy, and now he's launched a podcast of his own on the Forever Dog Network, Household Faces, a show where he interviews Hollywood's most recognizable and iconic character actors about their lives and work. New episodes are rolling out every Wednesday, and it's a blast, exploring the impressive careers of industry veterans like Spencer Garrett, Julianne Nicholson, and Nestor Carbonell. It's also one of the first podcast concepts where I'm actively annoyed with myself that I didn't think of at first. For this reunion episode, John wanted to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth feature from Quentin Tarantino, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie as three L.A. residents whose lives are about to intersect in the summer of 1969. DiCaprio is Rick Dalton, an aging movie star now taking guest spots on forgettable network TV shows. Pitt is Cliff Booth, Rick's stuntman, driver, and unofficial therapist. And Robbie is Sharon Tate, a rising starlet who's just returned from a shoot in England with her new husband, some guy named Roman Polanski who's never around. They all live within sight of each other in the Hollywood Hills, and if you know your history, you know something really awful is coming for them in the immediate future. But is it, though? This is someone else's movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, at its core, for all of Tarantino's talk about cinema and his love of cinema and his work towards uh, restoration. He owns the only theater in Los Angeles that exclusively shows 35 millimeter prints, some of which are his own from the Tarantino archives. For all his work as a cinephile, pound for pound, and for all the metonomic uh, significance of Hollywood as the place of movies, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about TV. It's about a 40-something actor with a drinking problem who subsists on guest star work. Now, I don't know what Leonardo DiCaprio sees in that part, but what I see... (laughs) (laughs) What I see is something profoundly relatable. Now, is it universally relatable? If my parents were still around, would I take them and expect them to enjoy it as much as I do? Not necessarily, but... That movie caught me in a place where I was instantly swept up in the stakes. And I've I've never been the level of famous that Rick Dalton was. You know, I do not have a 14 fifths of McCluskey uh, uh, in my on my resume. What I have is a series of of. various stages of TV villains and uh, a few TV losers. I do a lot of guest work. That is how I subsist. That is how I I get by. Um, There are moments like Speechless, which are frankly a little fluky in the grand scheme of my career. But most of the time I'm showing up, hired gun, director, also a hired gun. We have visions. God willing, they collide. God or God willing, they they work together and they don't collide. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a crapshoot. And, you know, you want to be on top of it, but sometimes things just go wrong. But that moment, we spend most of the second act of the film either on a TV set. Yeah, you know, you're on TV set or you're in Cliff's flashback to a TV set or you're watching you're watching Sharon's watching a movie or Sharon's watching a movie. Yeah, Um and we'll we'll talk about Sharon in the wider scheme of the of the of the film in a moment, or it's Rick after a hard day's work enjoying something that happens to be on that night, which has happened to me. I've been working on something when something I, I I've been on airs that night, and the next day I come in, and people are like, "Oh, hey, you know what I saw you on last night," and that's a wonderful feeling. Um, because work can be very, very sporadic in this business. And if you have any sort of overlap at all, you feel amazing for a a brief shining moment. Um, Sharon is sort of deliberately a cipher. That moment of her enjoying herself in the theater is, is very infectious and 
watching something you did six months ago, eight months ago, make people laugh right now in a room with you is is a wild feeling that's hard to capture it. I think Tarantino does. But what's interesting is when you read the novelization of the film, which I have, Sharon's stuff is tertiary in the book. The book is about Rick and Cliff very much, so much so that it doesn't even end the way the film does. The move, the book ends triumphantly with Rick pulling his shit together on the set of um, Lancer. Uh-huh. Um, they don't ignore about 150 pages in, so this isn't a spoiler, about 150 pages into this 350-page book, they mention that Cliff and Rick ostensibly, for all intents and purposes, save Sharon Tate and, and kill these hippies. So you're left wondering that, for the rest of us, so how are they going to end this book? And it ends. That's when it happens? It happens. Yeah, it's mentioned, it's mentioned very, very early on. And the book ends with a scene that is cut from the film um, that has to do with, with um, Rick's triumph pulling his shit together on the set of Lancer. So it is... It's very clear that that Tarantino wants to tell the story of this guy, this journeyman actor who is living job to job, but is sort of gradually getting a little bit of a footing. And there's a part of me that wonders if the if the Manson and Sharon Tate stuff is just there. So it feels like a Tarantino film. We just save all the apocalyptic violence for the last seven minutes, and then it comes in full force. Um, he's called it his most personal film. I see it. I think there is something about the love of the minutiae of, of working in front of a camera that I think comes across really nicely in the movie. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it while I'm promoting my podcast mm-hmm. is because one, I've, I've got one of the guys from the movie um, already recorded and I'm trying to get one of the other guys from the movie. And um, I would, God, I'd love to get clue Gulliger. Oh, what a get that would be. He's around. You see him around town. It's not impossible. You um, can't be that busy. Right. Yeah. I've got Spencer Garrett coming out. Soon, Spencer Garrett plays Alan Kincaid, who is the first voice you hear in the film, actually, inter- interviewing uh, uh, Leo and Brad on the set of Bounty Law. I want to get James Remar. I'm talking with him about it. He's one of the uh, guest members on uh, on Bounty Law. Michael Madsen shows up, and it, it's this festival of of character actors, of household faces, of people you you instantly recognize, and it's and the love that Tarantino has for guys like that is one of the things that I find endearing in all of his work. And it enables me to look past um, the sort of weird, uh, some of the the racial stuff, which can be a little problematic, the foot mm. thing, all the other <laughs> things that that I, I, I sometimes bump up against are redeemed by his incredible affection and fondness for actors. And I think that comes across. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I'm not a fan of the film. It's, yeah, it's, I, I did not hide my displeasure at it at the time. Um, and I want to talk about that because, I'm, I'm, by the way, it's, I, as I keep saying, this is an intensely personal affection I have for this film. I do and I not totally understand it. I do not expect every like again. I when the film was a massive runaway hit, I was like, I mean, that's great. Terrific. It's a three hour movie about an actor who has trouble staying off book. I'm I'm thrilled that it's a hit, but I I I'm who is who is latching onto this? And again, I don't even understand what Leo and Brad see in the material. That's what I mean about the film's appeal. It's I totally get why people connect to it. Um why do you think that is? Sheer texture alone. Because there are people who've never seen a movie like this and, and audiences, general audiences uh, in 2019 were not used to this sort of thing, right? I mean, you can put Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie and you can assume that it's going to pull some eyes, but not everything no, succeeds with them. Tarantino is like the packaging of Quentin Tarantino over his career, over those 30 years, 
the, my argument is that the packaging of Quentin Tarantino as an ineffable, um, uh, infallible genius of cinema has it been, I think it's been detrimental to his career, his growth as an artist. I think he's, nobody talks about the uh, the secondary damage, the artistic damage of Harvey Weinstein. But I think that some of the things he did as a producer to protect directors who were his golden geese, um, Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, um, Lassie Halstrom to a lesser degree, by making sure they could do whatever they want and packaging them as the perfect filmmakers for Miramax for the brand uh, by steering Halstrom into like just generic prestige picture after prestige picture by making him his go-to guy for Oscar bait. Mm -hmm. I think Weinstein did damage to their development. I mean, I, I truly believe that Tarantino's worst instincts are in this film. I don't know that it's detrimental. That's the weird part. Like the thing that I cannot stand is his decision to fix history. Yeah. Uh, I hated it in Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. I found it loathsome here mm-hmm. because the movie he made is a movie where Sharon Tate dies. Like the film he made right up until that scene is a movie about a ghost. Like we're watching her from a distance. She barely speaks. She seems like a really nice person. But it's the way people would have spoken about her after her murder. Right. Like it's it's viewing her that way. It is the way people speak about her after her murder. She is she is held up as um, kind of slight, maybe a middling talent. Um, very pleasant to be around. Yeah, a genuinely nice person is what mm-hmm. everybody seemed to say. Yeah, and he's taken that version of her because that is the only reference point, right? That's that's who she was, and. Then she just doesn't die, yeah. and that's that's great for the narrative. It gives him the the climax, the explosion of violence that he's been planning all the whole time. It gives the film a direction for the tension that surrounds all the characters. Mm-hmm. But what I kept thinking of while I was watching the movie is Tarantino. I think originally there's a version of this, and the problem is too he'll never admit to it because he's too invested in his own. Infallibility as an artist, yeah, Um, yeah, and you know, I've interviewed him a bunch. I met him when Reservoir Dogs came to TIFF, and he's always been this excited and this confident. That's why he's successful, I think. But he's also the same person that he was thirty years ago, and that's weird to to see that level of development not happen in an artist who is as gifted, who is as talented as he is. You don't see growth, and let's just take writing for a moment. You don't see a certain amount of nuanced growth from true romance to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I mean, granted, that's 30 years. Yeah, and true romance was the audition script, right? True romance right. is him showing off everything. But the the speechifying is still there. Mm. The reductive characterization is still there. Okay. The, like there. the thing that he does beautifully is the long looping dialogue scene that ends badly for someone. And what he does beautifully with that is not letting us know who it's going to end badly for. Well, he 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 has this thing. He takes what happens in Bond movies all the time and ratchets it up. So there's that moment where Bond has a very civil conversation with the villain. Mm-hmm. And but what the problem with the with those me- moments in Bond movies is that we know Bond's going to prevail, and we also know that. The villain's going to die, but it won't be particularly horrific. It might not even be on screen. Or it'll right. be like one quick close-up and then an explosion. Um, whereas you take the scene in Inglorious Bastards at the uh, after the party game where Fassbender's about to eat it. Right. Yeah. And and you, um, yeah, exactly, this moment. We're holding up three fingers the, uh, the German way for the listener at home. You take that moment, you're like, oh, this is what he does best. It's this sort of like f- almost flirtatious push and pull of these two people who are at such cross purposes that only one can leave alive and, and build that tension. Um, which, which uh, is also how that movie starts, right? With the scene between vaults and uh, yeah, Laurent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With what's her face um, uh, under Shoshana. the floorboards. Yeah. Shoshana under the floorboards. Right. Um, so yeah, that is something he does very well. And then he, and they pulls that off at the end of once upon a time in Hollywood briefly, but with um, Cliff very affably trying to remember Tex's name. Um, yeah. It's a much shorter version of that scene, but by that point, the, the momentum, we're rolling downhill. We know something's about to go down, but we're not exactly sure what. We've already jumped history because these hippies have shown up at the wrong fucking house on every level. 
Um, but yeah, he, as I say, you know, obviously this is a guy who, no, you're right. He has his tropes. He has the stuff that he, he leans on, but I want to ask you as, as do all filmmakers, as do all filmmakers. No question. No question. Um, uh, there was a moment in, um, early on in the Irishman, the very first shot of the Irishman, the tracking shot within the still of the night. And I enjoyed the Irishman, but I sat there and when that, when the movie began that way, I was like, so we're just uh, going to our corners. Then uh, that's what we're, yeah. uh, that's what we're, we're going to do this. Okay. This is, this is yeah. uh, so wait, who directed this? Ah, I see. <laughs> I mean, it was basically like having his signature, you know, emblazoned across the screen. And again, there's 30 years separating Goodfellas and the Irishman, and there's 17 years separating Goodfellas and Mean Streets. So yeah, people have their, their crutches by all means. Sure. But I want to follow up because I'm starting to interview people more. I have a question that I want to, sure. I want to, I want to get to that. You mentioned something about how, we are not yet reckoning with the artistic consequences of Weinstein. And I want to talk more about that. You know, you cite sure. Tarantino as being like, okay, Tarantino, this is what you do. You do talky, darkly funny, violent films. This is your brand. Stay there. Oh, no, no. I'm saying no, that okay. he never challenged Tarantino to evolve because what Tarantino was doing was sellable. So he steered him into whatever he wanted to do and never challenged him. There was never a, I don't know if Kill Bill needs to be too four hour movie, like oh, a I four see. hour movie experience. There was never a like grindhouse. Mm-hmm. You don't need to release the longer cut of Death Proof. You just don't <laughs> no. because that sends the wrong message on every level about mm-hmm. what that movie is. Yeah. And, and here you have, uh, well, not here because Winston didn't produce this one. This was the first one he did without him. Um, but in something like Django Unchained, for example, he came through Toronto for Django and we sat down and we were talking about the, um, cause it was already starting the N word thing. Like he's always been a proponent of it that he's, he's claimed he's practically black. He said all sorts of things that are yeah. just right. Like, but, but, but because he was protected, he never really had the chance to think about that and what it meant. And so we talked about that in Django and he said, I mean, I, I have a responsibility to write this experience. It's like, do you though? And this one particularly, like you've made a movie where a non-existent character ends slavery and, and there's white savior stuff all over it with, with Christoph Waltz and, and so much of it is just not, I mean, there's no way to say something is appropriate or not because it's art and you can do whatever you want. Right. Right. Obviously that's, that's assumed. But once that thing is made, the rest of the world gets to say, Oh, that's what you chose. Yeah. And this isn't a question of canceling or, um, right, but it no. is worth, it is worth a further, there are moments of missing introspection throughout his oeuvre. We, so Nola, who you just met, my daughter saw her first Tarantino during the pandemic. We watched both parts of Kill Bill, mm-hmm. female empowerment. Um, she loved it. She, yeah, I- Loved, loved, loved it, um, you know, and and she loved it for what it was, you know, not getting the visceral thrill of, oh, my God, that's Sonny Chiba. Oh, my God, that's Gordon Liu. Oh, my God, right. that's lifted from that really rarely seen spaghetti Western coming at you. Uh, that whole wedding scene is from there. Um, but he's put it on his head because the the bride survives. You know, she she absent that that context Tarantino is a completely wonderfully original filmmaker and not the kind of collage artist he sometimes is. Yeah. Which is one of the things I love about him. The, I, the I think so too. Thing and, and like the garburator aspect where he just takes everything and turns it into something new. Exactly. I mean, it's the way Paul's boutique works. It's the way yes. um, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising uh, works. Um, the, my favorite song on, on Three Feet High and Rising is I Know, which has this extensive Steely Dan sample. I do not care for Steely Dan, (laughs) but that is a bop. I love that because they've completely twisted it around and made it work in a bunch of uh, different ways where the the end of the chorus is now the main chorus. And it's an incredible piece of work. And I am not taking anything away from... De La Soul when I say that. I'm not taking anything away from 
Tarantino when I suggest that he takes the best parts of spaghetti westerns and then gets rid of the uh, Sicilians playing Mexicans and the weird physical comedy that doesn't age well and all the other stuff that doesn't work in, you know, everyone's only seen the hit spaghetti westerns. But if you go <laughs> if you go deeper on spaghetti westerns, there's tons of crap. There's oh, yeah. tons of crap. Um, so I'm not taking anything away from that. But here's the thing. We showed that to Nola and my my younger son, Walter, who is 11. We waited for Walter to go to camp before we showed Nola Pulp Fiction. And we had to have a long talk about Pulp Fiction. And and the the, the casual use of that word. Sure. And, and then I went in and... and did another dive on Pulp Fiction, I didn't realize that Tarantino was torn between playing either Jimmy or the Eric Stoltz character, who other who is another white guy who tosses around the N-word. Bruce yeah. Willis doesn't say it. John Travolta doesn't say it. Frank it's Whaley very, doesn't yeah, say it. <laughs> it's very specific. And it's not that I think he wrote those roles as an excuse to throw it around. I think he pictured himself in it and he throws the word around. I mean, yeah. then and in the 90s, I'm sure he doesn't anymore. At least I certainly hope he doesn't. But, but, yeah, I, it's a, but even in 1994, and I, I, you know, the first time I saw Pulp Fiction, I saw it with an audience. I was completely blown away. It was, you know, you see that thing. I don't know if you saw it on opening weekend, but something about that movie opening weekend was insane. It just was so when the audience realizes you're back in the diner and, and, and all the time jumps and uh, the moment with the needle in the heart, it's incredible. But even at the time I was like, where is the universe where somebody like Tarantino gets to throw that word around in front of Samuel L. Jackson and walk away with a full set of teeth? Where, yeah. where, cause that's no world I live in. And certainly not the world that, Jackson is existing in, in the film. Like, Jules would not countenance that for a second. Jules would not countenance that for a second. And maybe one of the things that I I enjoy about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that given that race plays a part in almost every single one of his films, it is perhaps one of the least problematic in that fashion, although as I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing there's exactly one person of color and he almost gets his ass kicked by Brad Pitt. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Like I did, and I even made that observation in my review. It's like, you know what? I don't think the N-word is mentioned once in this film, but the Asian guy doesn't come off so well. Yeah. And it is, again, the way he's handled that. And this is not part of the movie. It's part of his own response after the fact. And it shouldn't affect the film, but it can't help but do it because Tarantino is his movies in a way that very few other filmmakers are. And this is what brings me back to the other thing, the idea that he's been protected for so long that he can't conceive of making a bad call and doubles down and triples down and quadruples down. But the bad call that dooms the movie for me happened before he even finished the script because I am positive, positive that this entire film came out of him at a party overhearing someone say they'd never heard of the Spawn Ranch. And Quentin Tarantino would hear that and go, oh, well, the Spawn Ranch, I mean, let me tell you what happened there. They used to shoot TV shows there. There was these guys who would come in and he would have the whole thing laid out for the, the Manson family thing. That is not a bad Tarantino, Norm. Yeah, well, that is not I can a do, bad. I do a worse one, but it's actually just mean. It's very nasal. It's where you, it's where you say, okay, every third word. I flap your hands around. Yeah, sure. Um, anybody, I mean, anybody who saw Sleep With Me knows exactly how to I do perfect exactly Tarantino. what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's either the origin of it or the other part of it is he was thinking about the Manson family and what would have happened to the people who live next door. Like, what if the, what if two guys live next door to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate? What would happen? What happened to them? And I uh, some part of me thinks that the first draft of the film ended with everybody dying. Cliff and Rick and Tex. And it's just like a hateful eight ending. No, I think that it ends with Cliff and Rick being slaughtered and then the family moves on to the Tates. Oh God. To, Interesting. The, to the Tate house. I think that happened or maybe the Tates weren't the Tate. I keep saying Tates. Maybe the Tate house wasn't involved at all. Hmm. I, I think the tragedy of it is that this guy is on the brink of putting his life back together. And then the Manson family finds him. I think that's where it was going. Oh, it explains interesting. the aura. It explains the tension. It explains how Cliff, like Cliff smoking the joint could be taken unawares. Right. And I think at one point, the same thing happened that happened in Inglorious Bastards, which is just 
Quentin Tarantino decided he wanted these characters to live. And so he just decided they would. And then what follows, because a couple of people at the time were saying, no, it's a dream sequence. Of course, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family. These guys never stopped it. None of that happened. It's like, no, there's nothing in the film that says that. Oh, so the the, the suggestion is that it's Cliff's hallucination? Yeah, or uh, or even Rick's potentially. Okay. Because of the flamethrower thing. Okay. But he's he's imagining a victory for himself that he can't have in the real world, which- Mm -hmm. That's not what this movie is. I don't think that's it, yeah. No, this is a movie made by somebody who is gradually becoming enamored of the characters and can't let them die. Right. And so the obscenity of rewriting history, which, I mean, okay. again, it's it's like with Hitler in Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. There are some, I hate saying Doctor Who language at this point, but there are <laughs> fixed points in time. There are things that just have to happen because to do otherwise it's not is to full break. of a bunch of timey-wimey stuff, though? At the no, same time? but he's, okay. he's trying that. Okay, put a phone box in the background and I'll allow it. Okay. But it never happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Tarantino doesn't treat these films as fantasy, right? I mean, he's telling alternate histories in any case with a period movie. Um, but I find it incredibly, like, it's infuriating to watch someone obsessively recreate the world and then flip it, decide it isn't the world. And this didn't happen. Everything that happens with with Cliff and with Rick and with Sharon is leading to tragedy. And to suddenly decide that it was a victory, I don't think he's I don't think he's clever enough to be switch, switching the tone. I think he wanted this to happen a certain way and then he rewrote the ending and didn't change the rest of the movie. And obviously it would have happened before it was shot. I don't like, I'm just saying that the tensions, the scene in the, the scene at the Spawn Ranch mm-hmm. makes no sense. It's not my favorite scene. It's not my yeah. favorite scene. But, I, I mean, love Bruce Dern, but it's not my favorite scene. Hmm. Yeah. There's a great queasy tension. It would make sense if the film supported it by having someone know Cliff later, but they don't recognize him. The Margaret Qualley character isn't part of it in right. the same way. Right. Right. Um, and everything they're saying all the weird threats they're trading back and forth. By the time they get to Bruce Dern, it turns out they're not actually lying. They're upfront about it. Everything they said about him, he's up there, he's watching TV, we bring him his meals. It's all true. Right. So what you get in that scene is a character we know can take care of himself, threatening a bunch of women he doesn't like the look of, which is fine because it's 1969 in California and that's who Cliff is. Mm -hmm. But the way it resolves is I actually couldn't understand what the point of the scene was afterwards. I mean, if there's a callback later, if the, if it relates to the attack at the end, then sure. But he doesn't even do that. And it, it, that only rela- it only be- relates because Tex shows up and they recognize each other and Cliff gets to work out his anti-hippie um, sure. uh, outrage. And by the way, that makes me queasy too. Like, because you, if you take the, the right wing embrace of the film here in the States. I don't know what it was like up in Toronto. There was no, a, we were aware of it, but it there was a marked right wing and like it made top 10 on Breitbart. I want to say <laughs> it was a hit in the right wing by virtue of the fact that it is, uh, big on the status quo, big on the status quo. It is a, a an anti hippie treaties. I think it's a little more critical of that dying, those dying embers of Hollywood masculinity than the right wing grasped. I think, I do think Tarantino is at his core a little too much of a candy ass to view that uncritically. And I think there is something of the on his way out dinosaur to Rick Dalton. I mean, 69 is 1969. This is the year that Dustin Hoffman becomes a movie star and and the bell tolleth for thee, Rick Dalton, and your ilk. You know, this is this hit Mitchum really hard. This hits Lee Marvin really hard. It hits all those guys really, really in the teeth. So I, I don't, and, and Tarantino would know that, and Tarantino would be, isn't necessarily saying that that's a, that it's a bad thing that this this era is dying off. But any th- anytime you you can pretty up nostalgia, the American right is going to be like, that's our guy right there. Oh, yeah. That's us. Oh, yeah. And I think that DiCaprio and, and Pitt both go a long way to subverting that concept as well, because neither of those characters, as we see them performed, is a particularly nice person. Like, 
Rick learns to be better. Yeah. Um, and has his come to Jesus moment where he hallucinates a television shoot. And that's another thing that just pissed me off is the, the inconsistency about depicting, you know, the in-world stuff. It Come on. It's not this movie. You wouldn't do TV all sh- that in one take. The show, and the show's not being shot in widescreen. Make it look, you know, like at least play with the textures. He was doing it for the first hour and then he just forgot. Yeah. I guess. yeah. Uh, but if it's Rick's imagination, if this is his like his crucible and he nails it, then that's fine. But but DiCaprio is brave enough as an actor to show us the weakness and the fear and the and the misery of of worrying about fucking that up. And he and does Rick- it very, very well. And and again, that's what I keep coming back to is that moment in in the the trailer scene that everyone talks about, but the moment that leads to the trailer scene where the camera, they're trying to do a sort of slow tracking around the table. And when he every time he fucks up, the camera has to go back a little bit. And yeah. and that's I've been that guy. You know, I haven't shown up that hungover to work, but I, I have shown up hungover to work and it's not a great feeling. And um, it's funny. We were I, I've had way too many conversations about <laughs> about Rick Dalton in the early 70s with my friends. And my friend Mike Cassidy and I are under the, um, and I'm calling him out by name because I want him to share in this theory. My friend Mike Cassidy and I are under the strongly held belief, even though Tarantino himself has negated this, that the saving of Sharon Tate enables Rick Dalton to then assume the role of Jake Giddis. And we're in a whole different we're in a whole different timeline for the 1970s. And then my friend, Lauren, have to be my friend, Lauren Levine says, absolutely not. Rick's drinking is going to get in the way. And to which I shot back like fucking everyone is loaded at that time. I don't know that I buy that. Um, but again, my point being, I've had way too many conversations about this fictional <laughs> character's career in the 10 years after his text ends. Yeah. What I'm presupposing is um but but Polanski doesn't make Chinatown if Sharon Tate doesn't die. That's the other thing no one wants to talk about, right? Like Macbeth doesn't happen. No, Macbeth doesn't happen. But Chinatown, Chinatown you don't think Chinatown, Chinatown happens? I don't think so. If he doesn't make Macbeth, then he doesn't get into the orbit of town and uh, um, yeah, and right. Evans and and also he wouldn't be destroyed. That's the other problem with with this film too is that Tarantino knows he can't depict Polanski at all. Like there's some part of him that knows not to touch that that oplate yeah you yeah. have him gliding in and out because otherwise you're making a movie about room that's what was announced when the film went into production you know, like he's making a movie about sharon tate it's like oh my god he's making a polanski movie it's like no of course he wasn't going to do that right, right but he's so worried about depicting this character at all no we hear more from steve mcqueen yeah and yeah. mcqueen and also you get that surreal moment where we see uh, rick apparently who then Tested for the great escape? What the fuck is that shot? I mean, come on. He's not in the movie. Don't do that. That is true. Um, And I also think Rick will be destroyed by cocaine, but not till the late 70s. I think he has a, he'll play cops. He'll play, like he'd play, he'd play Harry Callahan's boss in at least one Dirty Harry movie. Okay. And everybody would be like, oh, that's the guy who saved Sharon Tate. Or, although, of course, he didn't save Sharon Tate because the way the movie plays out, nobody ever knows that happened. That's true. Nobody knows. The attack never happened, right? That's a very good point. There's, there's all this other stuff that's boiling around about the death of idealism in the sixties and the hit, the end of the hippie dream. But none of these characters with the exception of Sharon would really even care about that. Like Polanski wasn't connected to it. Right. He was, he was much more interested in uh, using quaaludes to, to have sex with children. Right. But right. Um, or underage, women. but yeah. Uh, yeah, children legally. Um, but Sharon is the innocent. And by saving her, Rick gets his life back, right? Like he's, they're all rewarded with survival. And I, I don't know where that happened in the script process, but it felt to me like it's a huge swerve. It lets the film be incredibly violent, not just to text, but the women are, are just absolutely bashed and mutilated horribly. It, it's, it's vile and violent and hard mm-hmm. to watch. And as always the, um, and hard to listen to. Sound is such a huge thing with Tarantino. And the more you watch his movies, you you recognize the the individual amount of Foley work that goes into every lit cigarette. And <laughs> the sound of her head hitting the mantle is pretty vivid. My wife was also a big booster for the film. And my wife, who is an actor and a writer, is also a bit of a... Um, 
she reads a lot about cults. She reads a lot about cults and cults behavior and cult behavior and um, is certainly as far as my household goes, our resident Manson family expert. And I can't remember the, the it's not Leslie Van Houten who who takes the mantle to the head, is it? It's I can't remember what the character or you is know, it Krenwinkle? I think it is. I, think I want to say Krenwinkle? yes. That sounds right. Anyway, Jamie was like, great. She was the worst of the bunch. She was absolutely <laughs> the worst of the bunch. Bash her head open. You know, my only problem is that Brad Parrott was wearing a shirt during it. I was like, all right, honey, fine. That'll you've made your point. But it was it was. It was interesting how, and she had an argument with another uh, another friend of mine who was a harsh critic of the film, who spoke specifically about the violence towards women at the end, and she was like, "Nope, that's Patricia Cronwinkle. That's not. That's an absolute monster. You take that out any way you possibly can." Um, here are some things that bumped me. There is a moment where Rick Dalton's wife has a moment of agency where she manages to kick somebody in the face and get out of the way. But what's weird is the film goes out of the way to show something that really happened, which is Bruce Lee training Sharon Tate in Kung Fu, sets it up where she could maybe land a couple sidekicks and get her way out of this and then doesn't deliver on that either. And he, he, you know... Tarantino subverts expectations. That's what he does. There is no such thing as an easy payoff. But there's but there's weird investments throughout the film that, like, if you're going to invest us in that, like, why show us the shot of Sharon being trained by Bruce Lee at all if that's not going to come together? And it's much the same way that you on it, you went into Inglorious Bastards thinking, oh, this is his Dirty Dozen. This is his guys right. on a mission. And then you meet like three of the guys. <laughs> you maybe get to know three of the guys. I have friends who were in Inglorious Bastards who thought they were doing the Dirty Dozen. Like, I got the Cassavetes role. This is amazing. Nope, that isn't what happened at all. Yeah. <laughs> I have very disappointed friends who were in that movie who were very convinced that they were going to be like, yeah, this is fucking it. I'm on the poster. We're doing this. Um so and again, it is part of him taking the conventions of genres that we have seen time and time again and subverting them. But it's hard to place exactly what is the genre of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Is it just a revenge fantasy? Well, no, not exactly. That's Kill Bill. And it's not a guys on a mission in World War Two. And it's not a Western revenge fantasy. And it's not a, a uh, isolated uh, snowbound Agatha Christie murder mystery the way Hateful Eight is. It's kind of its own thing. It's his very, very violent day for night. <laughs> kind of. And uh, Nuit Ameriquan for your, your Quebecois listeners. Uh, and I, I, I just, it's a, it's a troubling piece of work. I don't claim it's a perfect film by mm. any stretch. I just fucking love it. <laughs> it's now at That's, a point where it's yeah. like my it's like my dipshit cousin, this movie, where <laughs> anyone else speaks about it. I'm like, that's my fucking cousin. Watch your mouth. <laughs> I yeah. can say whatever I want, but that's my cousin. Shut up. <laughs> Not that I would yeah. ever to you. You understand. But I do get that. That's I mean, it's kind of how I describe Terry Gilliam a lot of the time. Like he's oh, a favorite yes. uncle who shows up. Gives everybody a great time and then through doesn't drink, doesn't touch a drop and still manages to crash his car on the way home. <laughs> Gilliam builds movies to play in the worlds. And I think this is the first time that Tarantino did that. Like he just wanted to bring these things to life. He wanted to build the sets. He wanted to be on set in a 1969 NBC. It, you know, he knows all about the what was it, like the MCA years where Wasserman took over and uh-huh. they just started packaging shows and putting stars and things. That's that montage that we get yeah. where every one of these is going to have Sylvia Sidney in the background somewhere. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, Peter Falk didn't get this cut. So somebody else does. And he loves the world so much. And I think in a weird way, the genesis, like the evolution of the screenplay gave him an excuse to populate it with everything he really, really cares about. Yes, exactly. I don't, I don't think he's doing any of this superficially. He is fully invested, way more so than, yeah, The Hateful Eight, way more so than Django Unchained. You see it in when you read the book, too, which I, I, you're probably not going to, but it, if when you read the book, the investment in the, the not just the origin story of the character's in Lancer, the origin story of the the pilot's development. <laughs> he takes you through how Stacy got cast. Um, he takes you through uh, how 
at the parallels that that Dalton feels having been James Stacy five years prior. You know, there's so many yeah. interesting little connections into how TV moves forward and how little has changed, frankly, in terms of like, oh, that person had a fun arc on that show. We can put them on this show because they've been a little road tested. It has to a certain extent happened to me on a much smaller scale because TV just is so um, is spread so thin now mm-hmm. that, um, you know, nobody's getting 28 million viewers on on anything now. But but that idea of. um Dalton was a TV star on a show, and now he has degraduated onto uh, the villain roles. Um, Stacy had a recurring on Bonanza, and now he has been upgraded slightly to the lead on Lancer, and so on. Um, it's it. He loves that shit. He loves the minutia of this ridiculous business, and it comes through in every frame. Yeah, he's built his world. And, you know, he says he was around. He was six. He, he was doesn't remember. Really, he doesn't remember any of it. But he was barely he out of Knoxville at that point. He was probably going to see. I mean, I have no doubt that the guy was going to see movies in um, in Long Beach. But I don't understand the logistics of how he thinks he's getting up to Hollywood and Vine. <laughs> yeah. yeah what, no, what, he's not taking the bus. What? <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't matter. Like, he probably... Oh, no saw all these TV shows in reruns 10 years or five years later. And, and that doesn't, that's all that matters because it's print the legend with him every time. Again, because it's more about TV than it is about film that, that film. Yeah. And the, and the fact that I could sit through it and watch it and it's you know two hours, 40 minutes of Quentin Tarantino telling me how great things used to be that he wasn't there for in the first place, but the actors make me believe it. Yeah. I, don't I don't mind watching it. I just find it ideologically offensive in I, so I, many ways. I completely get I mean it's it's you know, it's kind of sounds that it is like a movie that that comes to that leaps to mind as something that I will watch if it shows up on cable, even though it is dangerous agitprop is the original Red Dawn. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> original Red Dawn is endlessly entertaining and at the time i was like oh this is super wrong headed i'm like a, <laughs> i'm a moron 14 year old and i'm getting some willies so this is some sort of reaganite fantasia that i cannot get with again i'm 14 and i can see oh, yeah. through this movie's bullshit but you know it, it, it as we enter this era where we're having to really really consider where our ideological boundaries are and at what point do we stop enjoying something because it doesn't match our politics. Um, Like I have completely turned my back. It came up on, on the Goonies episode you had, I've completely turned my back on revenge of the nerds. I honestly think that film is irredeemable now. Um, I would agree. And there's, there's really nothing to hold on to. And I will, I will still kind of stick up for animal house to give you an idea of how like not woke I can be sometimes. Um, but I, I, yeah, there's just, it, it's just repugnant and rather amateurishly made too. I don't understand. I've never really understood the, the lionization and why it's in like the eighties comedy canon. It just kind of oh, like nerds. I, yeah. I, no, I, nerds I, is terrible. Uh, yeah. I mean, the camera's just kind of placed haphazardly. Uh, the music cues are generic, you know, animal house looks like a film. It's, you know, the, it's, it, it's makes excellent use of its composition. It's got an eye towards mise-en-scene. The Elmer Bernstein score is uh, punctuates every underscores everything and plays against the absurdity so nicely. Um, I think there's also a sweetness in having John Belushi be the most horrible character, right? Like there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of, stuff in that film that gets saved by him doing it yes yes that's i think that's um that's very true i think um the older i get the more i realize it should be just you know donald sutherland should be the name of the title it's just my absolute (laughs) favorite character in the history of cinema Uh, okay don't write any of this down (laughs) the the fucking and and and, you know it only got funnier when i taught high school for one year after college i all i ever thought about was this is my job Um, how did we get here? So as we consider, as we continue to think about where our ideological boundaries cross with our artistic boundaries, these conversations are going to happen more and more often. And I think that's really healthy. Um, 
And I, I, I don't know that we have to necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater all the time, but I, I just think these conversations are, are a necessary part of our evolution as Western world occupants. Yeah. And as a, you know, as a working critic, it's something I struggle with constantly. Oh, you must. Not only, yeah, not only am I interpreting the present day art, I have to think about the past because it all echoes. It's all still relevant. Somebody can still pull up a movie and watch it in any moment. They'll ask me what I think. And I'm like, um, that's great if you can ignore this thing. Right. And some people can, and it's easy. And uh, like I, Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby, this just came up a little while ago, are two of the greatest movies ever made in the English language. Yeah. They were made by a monster. Mm-hmm. And I have to reconcile myself to that if I ever watch them. And yeah. it's been a while. But I watched they're Rosemary's still on my Baby. Shelf. Rosemary's and- Baby I watched just during the pandemic, just during last summer, I think. It's magnificent. It is. It's it magnificent. Is. It's so fucking good. And it is, I'm, I'm of the opinion that there are exorcist people and there are Rosemary's baby people. And I'm strongly <laughs> Rosemary's baby across the board. Exorcist is a, a perfectly serviceable comic book, but Rosemary's baby is just the way this, the screws turn Nola, who you just met loved Rosemary's baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a slow paced horror movie. It is deliberately paced. It is very much like the dawn of the new Hollywood taking on the the haunted house movie. Um, and it's interesting because William Castle has to update his whole style to produce something yeah. like this. It's a wild piece of work. And it was it was directed by somebody who's straight garbage. Yeah. And it's a thing that you have to just swallow and get through in the movie. And there's um, uh, Scott Ackerman has this theory about uh, cancellation where it's like you're allowed to like whatever you liked before you found out. And I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Because your connection to the material will always be there. Yeah. It's just colored and colored in a way uh, that's emotional and also reactionary mm-hmm. and something we're all individually struggling with at, at different speeds at different rates. Like Emil Hirsch is in Once Upon a Time in America. He's, he's famous uh, for choking somebody at a nightclub. A, a lot of people saw it. A lot of people saw it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the movie blows past it and it kind of has to, right? I mean, there's no way to acknowledge any of that in the film. If you cast him, you cast him. Right. And it's just one of those weird little things where there's stuff about it, the treatment of Bruce Lee yeah, um, to give a wife murderer a moment of triumph in the middle of the movie, which again He's defended as aesthetically necessary. Tarantino has defended as aesthetically necessary. And Brad Pitt is clearly doing the best he can in that part. He's mm-hmm. I mean, he's doing amazing work. He deserved that Oscar. He's phenomenally good in this. And so is DiCaprio. And so is Robbie. Mm-hmm. And and Quali's great. I'd seen her in something else like a, a week before. And it took me a good hour to realize it was the same person. She, that is a magnificent performance. That is a magnificent piece of work. And I'm, I'm glad it kind of blew her up because she is... There is something so deeply juvenile, and I mean, she's a young actor, obviously, but there's there's something so deeply juvenile about that character that uh, the character has no composure. The character has, in modern parlance, no chill. Yeah. And, and that's hard because young, beautiful actors are consistently forced into these very composed boxes uh, very pristine and they're very they they become very self-conscious is my point and i don't mm-hmm. see a whiff of that and, and you saw it in her mom's work from 30 years ago you would see it in in like graystoke or or the early stuff movie movies that eddie mcdowell did through no fault of her own that was the nature of the business but for quality to just hurl herself into this you know, gawky, suddenly had a growth spurt uh, teenager who's, you know, hypersexualized, but still very much a child was just fearless. It was incredible to watch. Yeah. And Pitt plays off of that beautifully, too, because yeah. he somehow in that scene in the car where Cliff turns her down yeah. and, and does so gracefully before any of the other stuff happens. Yeah. Um, he has somehow managed to connect to it's that thing character actors do that movie stars do where you see the entire history of the actor's public life in the, in this moment. Uh-huh. And it's like Brad Pitt has had women throwing themselves at him his whole life. It's probably before he was a Brad teenager. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And that casting and that weird weariness that he has when he turns her down, it just feels like a rehearsed motion, but it's performed as a rehearsed motion. Like he knows the level to hit exactly to make it read to the camera and to make the scene play with quality. It's, it's remarkable. I, I, 
I'm assuming you've seen Ad Astra at this point. You know, I the, haven't, believe of, it or not. See, I was going to say a lot of people missed it. It is like this and that coming out within a month of each other. I hear they're wildly divergent performances. Yeah, they absolutely are. And he's doing he has a scene where he speaks into a microphone in a room that is as moving as anything else he's ever done. And it's all because he's trying to swallow it. His his character is swallowing this this emotion. And Pitt has found a way I never would have. I mean, I knew he was charismatic as hell. He, he showed up and I'd seen him in this thing. I used to review terrible straight to video movies for the star when I was starting out the Toronto star. And one of them was called Cutting Class. And he's in that. And oh, is that the like acting this, class movie? He's in an acting uh, no, class at one point? School, oh, okay. high school slasher picture. It's terrible. Okay. There might have been an acting class in it, but it's like he's playing a high school student. Okay. And it's like, oh, this kid is really, like he's awkward, but I don't think he really is. There's just this sense that it's an like it's a performance. Right. And then he showed up in Thelma Louise. It's like, oh, that guy. Right. And Which then, I just watched the other night, by the way. And um, there's not a bad performance in that film. There's a few different styles, but there's not a bad <laughs> performance in that film. And it's it's funny because we're talking about casting and the the putting exactly either the exactly right actor for the role or the exactly wrong actor for the role and then letting that subvert it. Like yeah. your sympathetic men in that movie are Michael Madsen and Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Um, Stephen Tobolowski comes off as a monster at one point. Christopher McDonald. Plays a dick all the time. Fine. Great. Nails yeah. it. We see we see that coming. Yeah, but it's that's well fine. used. Yeah. And he's very well used. And he's doing he's doing larger work than anybody else on screen. His work is a little more I don't want to say mannered because that seems dismissive, but there's a there's a bigness to his performance that you won't find, certainly from Sarandon or or Davis, but he's servicing the material. Yeah, um, he has to show us why. She wants nothing to do. That's with exactly it. She. We have to understand why this woman would go on a fucking crime spree when all she really has to do is throw uh, Louise under the bus and she's off scot free. Um, yeah. But um, uh, and and he does that perfectly. But it's the same sort of thing. God, I was talking about this and on the podcast we had John Carroll Lynch on, um, and I was talking with him about Shutter Island at the risk of um, spoiling a moment of the, uh, the podcast, but he talks about Scorsese using the same, the same principle and surrounding DiCaprio with employees of the asylum who have played killers. So Scorsese deliberately puts the Zodiac killer and yeah. Buffalo Bill. And if you want to get technical, the guy from Sexy Beast as employees of the asylum so that we are automatically, just by virtue of the fact that we go to the movies, we are automatically put on our back heels and in a defensive crouch the second we look up at that screen without the script moving a finger. Yeah, there's, um, I guess it'll be out by the time this, of course it will, uh, Nine Perfect Strangers, the Hulu show. Yeah, um, about which, which I hear very mixed things, but I'm curious. I, I saw the first six episodes. I haven't seen the last two, but I really like it. Okay. It is playful and weird. And the best way to describe it is by saying that Jonathan Levine cast Michael Shannon as a normal person. Oh, that's great. He's, that is he's nice. Cast as a, yeah, he's cast as a suburban dad. Oh, wow. Uh, who is, who is, who is getting over a tragedy. He, he, and his family have shown up at this. His, his wife and daughter have come with him to this retreat and watching Michael Shannon play a normal person who tries a little too hard is, terrifying no oh, wow. because either he is like either he is subverting his natural intensity to play someone who has none and it looks like it looks like someone who's trying so hard to keep it together mm -hmm. it's fascinating and then when he as as the show evolves and shannon gets to do stuff um that is much more michael shannon-y it's just it's exhilarating to watch this performance shape itself through it like everybody's good in it but shannon's fantastic you had me and michael shannon at, yeah um, we've talked about pretty much everything. I was trying to figure out if there was a lead into the, to the, to your podcast, but we're sort of, it's woven in throughout all of this. Um, so what, what is the best package for household faces? How do you want people to think of it before they seek it out? Or if they've already heard it, what would you want people to say? About well, it? honestly, I think, and I didn't even realize this until I was listening to some, I, I spent a big chunk of today in the car and listen to a bunch of your podcast. And I think we're going to share an audience in the long run because we are, 
we are getting people to talk about other people who do what they do. So it is it is this you know, journeyman character actor talking to other people who live job to job and are still auditioning it deep into their middle age, some of them, and not getting straight offers and still have a lot of hustle and have a lot of amazing stories and maybe have not been sat down for an hour to discuss their craft and their process the way massive movie stars have. And I mean, I think it's a good, it's definitely a fun thing for fans and cinephiles to listen to. But I think it's a really good show for budding actors to listen to because you're you're going to, if you're lucky, your career is going to look a lot more like Xander Berkeley's than Brad Pitt's. You know, you're going to have to just kind of strap in and realize that's probably going to be, you know, your best case scenario is, <laughs> is a steadily working guy who qualifies for insurance year after year, thanks to his union, but is rarely on the poster. And... I, I've always been fascinated by those guys, um, much the way Tarantino is, I think. And it's been really, really fun to talk to them. And we've also tried to to broaden the definition of what makes a character actor so it isn't just all – because there's a battery of old white guys we can pick from, no question. Mm-hmm. But we're, we've managed to flesh things out a little bit and take it into to some new directions with some people who – keep popping up in films, but maybe aren't on the same lists as Christopher McDonald or Stephen Tobolowsky. Um, is Bruce Dern involved? I mean, I know he'd be the obvious one for Once Upon a Time. He'd be hard to, I, he's, I think he's hard to reach. Um, I would love, I mean, he's a dream. The problem with Bruce Dern, Bruce Dern's one of those really interesting guys who was a lead for 20 years and then aged out of it, but managed to maintain a solid um, character actor career. Sure. thereafter and we're and we my producer ben blacker who came to me with this idea he's referred to that as the roundtree rule like <laughs> i'd love to get richard roundtree on richard roundtree has been doing amazing supporting work for 20 years but i cannot ignore the fact that he's shaft right so but that that can define a character actor's post career right too because they that is the reason he gets cast as all the cops that's the yeah the echo of shaft is is like with bruce stern i don't know what you'd be echoing because there's so much there is so much but i think you're, you know i honestly think there's a part of you so much of his recent work is echoing the bikers from the corman movies in the 60s mm-hmm. um is it wild angels is that the big one where he met his wife yeah, i think it is diane ladd um, so. Wild Angels is, yeah, I know George Spahn is a real guy, but there's something to be like, that could be where George Spahn ends up, you know, that biker could end up, you know, being looked after by, by hippies years later. You know, there's, I think there's, there is a, a through line there. Um, but then you look at his work in Coming Home, which is one of my favorite movies, sure. um, and he's, he's, you know, one of the three leads of that. And it's a completely different performance. Complete, just, it's a, it's a 180 from the Biker King. Um, and yeah, he'd be a fascinating one to have on. My wish list is massive. My I wish list is, is crazy. I've spent weeks hounding Bill Camp. Uh, weeks. Um, it's, uh, it's it's been pretty exciting, but I've gotten a lot of um, surprises. It's a combination of going through publicists and um, rounding up some favors from friends. It's been a nice little mix of people I know and people I've never met before at all. That's um, how this started. Yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. So it's been really, um, it's been really, really fun to work on. Well, I can't wait to hear it. And I, as I said to Ben, I'm pissed that I didn't think of it first, but I think it makes more sense for an actor to do it. I mean, that's the hope. You know, I think I think a critic really should be doing your uh, the this podcast. And I think uh, a a vaguely recognizable uh, uh, journeyman actor should be doing my podcast and all is well and right with the world. My thanks to John Ross Bowie, whose excellent new interview show, Household Faces, is available on all podcast platforms via the Forever Dog Network. Thanks also to Ben Blacker. He knows what he did. John's not currently on Twitter, which is a shame, but you can follow his show at Household Faces, all one word, and you can find Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Netflix in Canada and on Stars and Amazon Prime Video's Stars channel in the U.S. It's also available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. 
As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and figuring out what the new version of the Now Streaming newsletter is going to look like. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies, stay safe, wear a mask if you go out, get your shot if you can. Enjoy the long weekend. I'll see you next time.